Volume Three, Chapter Seven, Part Two, of the Mummy: A Tale of the Twenty-Second Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mummy: A Tale of the Twenty-Second Century by Jane Loudon, Volume Three, Chapter Seven, Part Two. It was a shocking thing to see these two old men, their white hair streaming in the wind, their venerable features wrinkled with age, and their feeble frames tottering for support, fighting with all the vindictive fury of youth. How fearful is the storm of passion! How vile the human heart when left to its own workings! Every gentle feeling was extinguished in the breasts of the two veterans, and only brutal rage remained. For some time victory was doubtful, but at last Sir Ambrose fell, and in another moment the sword of his antagonist would have passed through his bosom had not a powerful arm arrested the stroke. It was Edmund. He had heard the clashing of swords at a distance, and rushing to the spot, arrived just in time to prevent the fatal blow. "'Oh, my father!' cried Edmund with a thrill of horror. "'For God's sake!' do not die till you have forgiven me he hears me not cried he wringing his hands in unutterable anguish oh for mercy's sake speak do not destroy me sir ambrose feebly opened his languid eyes farewell said he faintly god bless you oh do you forgive me shrieked edmund falling upon his knees i do said sir ambrose and the duke the words feebly ebbed from his lips and as he spoke the fearful rattle of death gurgled in his throat and with a convulsive sob he expired sadly did the duke now gaze upon his fallen foe but when he found him dead he was distracted madly he tore his hair and threw himself upon the corpse but his agonies were in vain the vital spark was extinct. Edmund stood also for some seconds gazing upon the body without any distinct idea existing in his mind, but when the whole sad reality rushed upon him he could not endure his own thoughts and darted away with the velocity of lightning. The duke heeded not his departure. He had thrown himself upon the body of his departed friend, and the whole universe seemed to contain for him only that bloody corpse. "'I have killed him! I have killed him!' cried he. "'I have killed him!' His fearful shrieks soon drew many persons to the spot. "'I have killed him!' screamed the duke in answer to all interrogations. "'I have killed him!' Ablard was one of the first collected round this mournful spectacle. "'What can we do?' said he to Father Murphy. "'The case seems desperate.' "'I have killed him!' again screamed the Duke in agony. "'He's entirely mad,' said Father Murphy, "'and there's no doubt of it.' "'I've killed him!' repeated the Duke, with a still more piercing shriek. "'I've killed him!' oh he is mad cried all the spectators whilst they attempted to remove him from the spot with infinite difficulty they succeeded he still clinging to the corpse and screaming i've killed him 
till his voice was lost in the distance whilst these scenes were transacting at the english court the army of roderick marched through the kingdom without opposition for the people everywhere tired of the tyranny of her rival received elvira with open arms and the chief nobility vied with each other in opening their houses to entertain her and her suite as she passed along it was a fine evening in march and the night was clear though cold when elvira with hurried steps paced the fine terrace belonging to the castle of one of these noblemen the queen was evidently lost in reflection and as she occasionally stopped she threw back her long hair and looked up to the sky with an air of intense anxiety it is a lovely night murmured she heaven grant that peace may still attend us yet i fear i know not what of danger oh if the forces of rosabella should resist and roderick should fall and for me she paused for the thought seemed too dreadful for endurance the moon shone brightly in the heavens and the stars sparkled like diamonds on the clear blue sky while stelvira raising her eyes to heaven and clasping her hands together seemed lost in silent prayer her fair face shaded by her long black veil looked even more lovely than usual from the soft light thrown upon it and as she stood thus apparently quite absorbed in inward devotion she seemed almost a celestial being descended for the moment upon earth and about to remount to her native skies a figure wrapped in a long dark cloak now appeared at the extremity of the terrace and advanced slowly towards the queen two other figures also emerged from the shade and followed though at a considerable distance elvira was not aware of their approach till the first figure stood behind her and seizing her arms threw a cloak over her head to stifle her cries and then with the help of the others was hurrying her off at this moment roderick sprang actively upon the terrace and with one blow from his vigorous arm felt the first assailant to the ground then drawing his sword the enraged monarch would have instantly dispatched him had not the supposed assassin uttered a piercing scream and clinging round his knees implored mercy the moon shone full upon the boy's face and disclosed to roderick's astonished eyes the features of the dumb page alexis cried he the boy sprang from the ground roderick screamed he then i am ruined stay returned the king grasping his arm and preventing his escape who and what are you speak or dread my vengeance the boy's heart beat almost to suffocation every nerve throbbed with the most violent emotion and drawing a dagger from his belt he attempted to plunge it into the heart of roderick oh cried the king starting aside in time to prevent the blow whilst ere he could prevent it the page had buried the weapon in his own bosom good god exclaimed roderick what can this mean the whole of this scene had passed with such rapidity that elvira had scarcely time to recover herself or to be aware of what had happened the two assistants had fled the moment they perceived the king and elvira with trembling steps and pallid cheeks approached the spot where roderick knelt beside the bleeding page throwing herself beside him she attempted to staunch the blood which flowed rapidly from the wound but in vain for the boy's life was evidently fast ebbing 
Brian, a servant of the king, who had followed his master to the terrace, aided her endeavours. But Roderick remained fixed and immovable, his eyes chained as by the power of fascination upon the page, who now slowly unclosed his eyelids, and heaving a deep sigh, fixed his languid eyes upon those of Roderick. "'Zoe!' cried the king. "'Yes,' returned the page, gasping for breath, and speaking with difficulty. "'Zoe, I am indeed that wretch. I loved you, Roderick. I would have died for you. I do die for you. But—but but Elvira! What meant your outrage upon her?' "'What did it mean?' cried Zoe, her eyes flashing fire, and her whole frame supported by a supernatural energy. Did I not see that you loved her, and could I endure to resign you to another? No, continued she, starting from the ground. I would have killed her, and had she perished, I should have died contented. The violence of the action made the blood gush in torrents from her wound, and pale and feeble her failing eyes closed. She staggered a few paces, fell, heaved one convulsive struggle, and Zoe was no more. Sadly did Roderick gaze upon that form which had so lately thrilled with feeling, now cold and inanimate at his feet. The victim of passion lay before him. Her hopes, her fears, her rage and her love had passed away, and there her body remained a senseless clod of clay, till it should be resolved into its original elements. By this time some of the servants of the castle, who had been summoned by Brian, approached and the old heir of warwick in whose castle the fatal scene had taken place rushed upon the terrace calling wildly upon his people to save the queen is it the lady elvira that you mean asked brian oh ain't it please your honour and she's safe every inch of her and what has been the matter asked the earl oh and your lordship may well ask that but the devil a bit anybody can tell you but one and that's myself you see my master his most gracious majesty and me were walking in the garden that is he was walking and i was watching for fear any harm should happen to him for the life of such as he isn't to be trusted to chance in a strange country and i guess he was thinking of the queen though he never said nothing about it and so when we came near the terrace it was so dark you couldn't see your hand before you and then the moon peeped through the clouds like a pretty face looking through a ground glass window and then she came out as bright as a silver mirror and the queen looked so pretty as she stood praying that my master couldn't find it in his heart to interrupt her and for me i wasn't the man to be even thinking of such a thing and then two black-looking spalpeens bad luck to them stole out behind her and there wasn't two for there were three of them with never a living soul beside to be seen in respect of being near her but god never would suffer a real lady like herself to want a friend to comfort her when she'd be in need and my master wouldn't let her be after coming to harm for he jumped upon the terrace entirely like a hound springing at the deer and saved her which nobody but himself could have done like it for the very life of him and when i came there was the man lying dead that would have killed the princess and it turned out he wasn't a man at all but a woman the story of zoe is soon told bred in a warm climate and naturally enthusiastic in her disposition she was a child of passion 
the misfortune she had experienced in greece by depriving her of all she loved had thrown back her affections upon her own bosom and they had preyed upon themselves to give vent to the feelings that oppressed her she created an image of perfection in her own mind and this she worshipped in secret when she saw roderick all was changed a new world seemed to open upon her the idol of her fancy stood before her for roderick realized all her wildest dreams he became her god his heroism his person his talents caught her imagination and the violence of her passions completed the delirium of her soul notwithstanding however the intensity of her feelings no thought of grosser texture contaminated her mind her love was as that of angels pure and undefiled she regarded roderick as a thing enshrined almost too holy for mortal vows to worship and she would have considered it sacrilege to dare even to think of him as a husband with these feelings she had watched over him with almost a mother's love and when she informed him of the conspiracy against him she resolved with all the romantic self-devotion of a fond woman to follow him unknown and in disguise without any plan however but that of being near him or any hope but that of contributing to his happiness money and the assistance of one or two devoted servants who contrived to follow in roderick's train had enabled her to accomplish this she had felt a momentary jealousy at his anxiety for pauline but that feeling had worn away when she discovered the mutual passion of edric and the fair swiss now the case was different and maddened by the sight of roderick's devotion to elvira she had determined to destroy her her trusty greeks would have assisted her plan but they fled at her detection inexpressibly shocked at what had taken place roderick could scarcely bear again to separate himself even for an instant from elvira do not bid me leave you said he looking at her with the fondest affection you shall accompany me even to the field oh would to heaven you would give me a right to be near you for ever alas alas replied elvira i tremble for the result of this fatal contest oh that i were but a humble peasant would to heaven you were cried roderick with enthusiasm for happy as i always am in your presence never do i feel so much so as when we seem as at present secluded from the world then i could forget your rank and all the artificial restraints grandeur has thrown around you and without remembering that i am roderick and you elvira think only of a pair of simple lovers whose weightiest care was their attendance upon their flocks and whose only happiness consisted in loving and being beloved alas roderick replied elvira do not speak of love after the dreadful scene we have just witnessed i tremble at the passion no be my friend roderick friendship is more sure than love on that we may confidently rely but passion destroys itself with what it feeds upon intense feelings cannot last oh elvira say not so cried roderick fixing his eyes earnestly upon her blushing countenance whilst she trembling and agitated betrayed by her confusion the passion she would have fain concealed how feeble are words to express the transports of such a moment tis the oasis in the desert of life the bright gem that casts a radiance even upon the draws with which it is surrounded man is born to misery thick clouds hang over him and obscure his path dangers await him at every step 
one single ray alone breaks through the gloom bright as the fairy dreams of childhood but alas equally fleeting tis love pure passionate unsophisticated love the only glimpse of heaven vouchsafed on earth to man and this was what was now felt by roderick and elvira as he throwing himself at her feet vowed eternal constancy and persuaded her to acknowledge that her hopes of earthly happiness centred in him alone but why do i profane such a scene by attempting to describe it those who have loved have only to recollect what they felt upon a similar occasion and to those who have not heaven help them not all the eloquence of cicero would give the least idea of anything of the kind suffice it to say that before roderick and elvira parted she consented if success should crown their efforts to become his bride the state of england at this moment defies description the death of sir ambrose and the insanity of the duke of cornwall were events so shocking in themselves that it was not surprising they produced a violent effect upon the minds of the people edmund had disappeared and rosabella instigated by father morris and marian became every day more rapacious and tyrannical whilst even they quarrelled among themselves and wretchedness prevailed throughout the kingdom this was the state of the public mind when the news of the invasion of roderick first reached the ears of rosabella marian she exclaimed summon father morris we are ruined continued she as the reverend father entered absolutely ruined roderick is invincible and he supports elvira where is caops hey returned father morris where is caops it is that accursed fiend that has led us on to destruction his counsels have destroyed us for though plausible in appearance they have been as deceitful as the oracles of old yet you trusted him said rosabella i hated him from the first but you trusted him you thought him of perfection he flattered your vanity and you weakly believed everything he asserted weakly cried father morris his lips quivering with rage yes weakly returned rosabella for a child would have seen through his artifices but you were deceived by them and have been his dupe his tool his plaything this to me cried father morris gnashing his teeth together with passion yes to you returned rosabella coolly for why should i longer conceal my sentiments i will no longer be your slave you have made me deserted by my husband hated by my subjects and detested by myself i will therefore no longer follow your counsels from henceforward i will act for myself adieu we meet no more as friends and as she spoke she walked out of the room leaving the priest motionless with astonishment this to me cried he to marian as soon as he recovered himself sufficiently to speak to me who have sacrificed everything for her did i not place her on the throne have i scrupled even to imbrue my hands in blood for her sake have i not committed crimes for her that weigh heavily upon my soul did i not poison claudia and should i not also have destroyed elvira if caops had not saved her oh marian am i awake is it not a cruel dream is it possible it can be rosabella rosabella my rosabella 
my child, my own Rosabella, that uses me thus. Hush, hush, cried Marion. Tis but the passion of a moment. Be composed. Rosabella still loves you, but irritated by the desertion of Edmund and the news she has just heard. Oh, Marion, interrupted the friar in agony. You may easily reason, but you never had a child. But if heaven had blessed us with one, you might have felt for my anguish. I do feel for you, returned Marion. But does she not treat me with equal scorn? Since the absence of Edmund, she has become distracted, and I, who know the agonies a woman endures when she finds herself deserted by the man she adores, can feel for her. And who first gained her Edmund? Would he ever have become her husband, had not I induced him? I believe not. Neither would she have been queen but for you. No, no, oh, how I have toiled for that ungrateful girl! How I have adored her! You have been a devoted father. Have I not, Marian? I have at least endeavoured to expiate my sin. I have done penance. I have spent nights unnumbered in painful vigils. I have scorched my body till the feeble flesh has sunk beneath the torture. Yet still my mind remains unappeased. Remorse still gnaws my vitals. Oh, Marian, how poor is earthly grandeur to a mind diseased! In this manner did these companions in iniquity confer, till at length, hating each other and themselves, they gave vent to mutual upbraiding, and parted with undisguised hatred and contempt. Such, indeed, is the disgusting nature of sin, that though a man may shut his eyes to his own defects, or rather see them through the magic prism of self-love, yet he almost always abhors them when he sees them reflected in another. Thus it was with Father Morris. Marian had been his associate in many scenes of vice. He had in fact first led her from the paths of virtue, and, as is usual in such cases, he now hated the creature he had made. Father Morris was indeed that brother of the Duke of Cornwall, whose crimes and punishment have been before slightly hinted at. He had married in early life a beautiful and accomplished woman, but instigated by the machinations of Marian, who he had previously seduced and abandoned, he had become jealous of her, and, in a paroxysm of rage, had deprived her of life. This was the crime he had since endeavoured to expiate by the penance of his whole life. Vain, however, had been his endeavour. The mortification of the body avails little, where the humiliation of the spirit is wanting and Father Morris, notwithstanding his apparent repentance, was proud, envious, and intolerant. In a fit of remorse, after the death of his wife, he had embraced a monastic life, and in order to subject himself to a perpetual penance, had placed himself as father confessor to his brother. No situation, in fact, could have been more painful to a proud spirit than this, yet this daily misery Father Morris felt a pride in supporting without murmuring it is strange but true that haughty spirits sometimes feel almost pleasure in trying their powers of endurance to the utmost for there is a self-satisfaction in thinking we have borne what seems almost too much for mortals that often consoles a man under the acutest agonies 
this was the case with father morris and the daily tortures which he endured without shrinking almost reconciled him to himself ambition however was still his master passion and as his monastic vows prevented its indulgence in his own person he devoted himself to the advancement of his child how he succeeded and how he was rewarded has been already shown End of chapter seven part two of volume three